Well, good morning. I'm uh, very glad to be able to even be standing here. Uh, many of you know, uh, since the last week in December, uh, I've been struggling with uh, bronchitis. After going to the doctor for the third time on Thursday, uh, I said, give me everything you got. Uh, I need it. Uh, Thomas and Libby are enjoying their vacation in uh, Ventura, and they'll be driving on their way uh, back up here today. So they appreciate your prayers as well, just for a safe uh, journey. Um, And I appreciate your prayers as well, that the Lord would uh, help me to deliver His Word today. Because today is... uh, uh, it's a difficult message, and it's one that we, we all need to take to heart. But to make the difficult message better, let's start with pure honey. Uh, I love honey. Peanut butter and honey is, I'm sure, in heaven. Uh, it'll be there, I'm guaranteed of that. Uh, but it's interesting that it says pure honey. Uh, I love documentaries, and uh, if you're a Netflix fan, uh, there's a documentary series that came out in January called uh, Rotten, and it was about uh, the food supply in the world, and the first episode was on honey. You don't know it, but between 2008 and 2015, the largest food fraud case in America was solved when a German company importing honey, primarily from China, through Poland and Russia, was 85 to 90% of all their honey was diluted. It wasn't pure honey. See, the problem in the world is there's a greater demand for honey than there is a supply. If you need a greater supply of honey, what do you need more of? Bees. All right, guys, let's go multiply. <laughs> you know, they, you can't control. Uh, and actually, the supply of bees in the world is decreasing. The demand for honey is increasing. It started in America where they would dilute honey using corn syrup. Uh, but China has perfected the art using rice syrup. How do you know that the honey in your bottle at the grocery store is pure honey. The largest importer to America from Germany, 90% of their imports were diluted with rice syrup. It wasn't pure. How did they know it was not pure? They actually had to develop labs. Germany has the best labs. They have tests that they have to take of honey to determine whether it has impurities in it. They have to test it to make sure that it's pure. Every time they come up with a test to verify the impurities, what do you think the counterfeiters do? They come up with a new formula of secret sauce uh, to put in their honey. That is exactly what the whole thing, uh, uh, the documentary was about, was this game that goes on, just like the drug cartels uh, cutting the purity of their opium. 
is they're always changing the formula. And once they, uh, the testers figure out the formula, they change it to where they can't tell that it's uh, been diluted. Now, the $2 that my wife paid for this was not a huge loss. The, the problems that occur in my life, because this may not be absolutely pure, is not all that significant. But imagine if you thought that you were a pure Christian. You were the real tamale. And you found out when you appeared before God on Judgment Day, and he said to you, when you said, Lord, Lord, and he says to you, be gone from me. I never knew you, doers of iniquity. What if you were a counterfeit on Judgment Day and not the real deal? That's of eternal significance. And that's exactly what Jesus had to say in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what the, the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was, is what does a real Christian look like? Starting with the Beatitudes, what type of attitude does a real Christian have? And then he ends at the very end of uh, a test of how you know you're in the kingdom or not. And that's why he said there will be some who, who are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're pretenders. They're not for real. And then the question is, is how do you know who the pretenders are? And Jesus said, you will know them how? You'll know them by their fruits. This is a very, very big issue in Scripture, is the importance of testing oneself to make sure that you're in the faith. This was the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the book of 1 John, the Apostle John gives over 25 tests to know whether or not you are uh, in the faith. 1 John 5.11 says this, And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. What was the whole reason that he wrote the book of 1 John? These things I've written to you that you believe for those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And he lists 25 plus characteristics that should be true of a real Christian. It was important to John. It was important to Jesus. And also it was important to Paul. He said in 2 Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Today we're going to look at the book of James. And um, for those of you who may not know, James was the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, he and all the brothers thought he was an imposter. And that's why it's important in 1 Corinthians 15 when it mentions when Jesus resurrected, who does it say he appeared to personally? James. 
his brother. And the reason why that was so significant is James ends up becoming the head of the church in Jerusalem. Peter is the one that we know on Pentecost who kind of started the church. He was the spokesperson. But we know from the book of Acts that James is the one who became the head of the church in Jerusalem. And we know the book that he wrote, five chapters, possibly one of the first books that were written, 10 to 14 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, he wrote to Jews who had been scattered outside Jerusalem. And if you want to look at the book of James, one commentator says the best way to look at it is it's 13 tests that the audience should read and evaluate themselves. Am I a Christian? He's asking fellow Jewish Christians who are not in Jerusalem in the church, they're in Jerusalem, how do you know you're in the faith? And he gives them 13 different tests. And today we're going to look at one of those. And so if you would turn over to uh, James chapter 3. We'll look at one of those tests. The other thing to know about James that's really amazing is James was greatly impacted by the Sermon on the Mount. There are 21 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in five chapters. Some believe James was simply a commentary on the sermon that Jesus preached. So James is telling his Jewish brethren exactly what it is his brother Jesus had to say. And he's challenging them. Are you in the faith? Let's look at James chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Before we can look at the answer that uh, James has here to the question, who is wise and understanding, You and I may think that's kind of an odd question. Who is wise and understanding? What's he asking? Uh, But as Norm read in the scripture reading this morning, uh, he read from the book of Job, and some uh, argue that Job possibly is the first book ever written in in the Bible. Uh, Job was possibly a contemporary of Abraham. Job himself uses this phraseology where, where do you go to find wisdom and understanding? 
Where does it come from? And then he ends up stating God's answer to that question in verse 28 of chapter 28 in Job. He says, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So, this whole concept for a Jew, they would know what it means when it says, who is wise and understanding? It goes all the way back to Job. And the answer that God gives there, when, when Job was looking for where wisdom and understanding came from, it's not a place. It's an attitude of the heart. Do you fear God? Do you avoid evil? Last month, we were reading uh, as a church in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, once you turn there to Deuteronomy 4, Moses is giving the sermon to the, the Israelites before they enter into the promised land. <clears throat> and he has uh, some interesting things to say to them about them as a nation, as a whole. If you look at Deuteronomy 4, starting with verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So when a Jew, uh, as James is speaking to a Jewish audience, when a Jew would hear uh, the whole concept of what is wisdom... This is what a Jew would understand from uh, Job and from Moses. Wisdom is skill, experience, or shrewdness. And it always leads, this is the important point, it always leads to holiness and devotion to the Lord and His will. A person cannot be wise and rebellious against God. True wisdom always leads to holiness, to the keeping of God's law. And we know even in Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom uh, comes with the fear of the Lord. So what would a Jew understand when he would hear the word understanding? It means comprehension, discernment, righteous action. See, Job defined it as turning away from evil. Now, this is very important. As a parent, how can I help my kids turn away from evil if my kids don't know what is evil? See, they first have to discern what is evil to be able to, to turn away from it. So, true understanding, according to Job's God's definition that he gave to Job, is that you need to discern what is evil and turn away from it. That 
is understanding. So if I were to take Moses' definition, when he was talking to the Israelites, he said, how are the other nations going to know that you are wise and understanding? It's because they're going to see that you keep his commandments and that his statutes are wise and you're keeping them, you're a wise nation. And what's interesting in that definition there in Deuteronomy is there's a relationship with two things that are occurring there as part of the wisdom. God is near. See, when a nation is righteous, God is near. And sin is distant. God is near. Evil is not. And then based on Job's definition, it's fearing the Lord. He is judge. He's the giver of truth. And the fact that I believe that and acknowledge it is how I become wise. And understanding is to turn away from evil. So in essence, if we were to take Job and Moses' definition, wisdom and understanding is being truly skilled in the art of righteous living because I fear and love God. In essence, as James is saying in here, who is wise and understanding, he's saying, who's a Christian? Who truly knows God, fears Him, and avoids evil? Who? He's asking the question. Who is that? James goes on to answer that question himself, if you look there at the second half of verse 13. The question already implies the answer, which is it has to be a Christian. But he elaborates. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So the answer to the question is, A Christian who lives out his faith. That's the simple answer, and we'll unpack that in three weeks. Today we're going to look at the next verse in the implied second question that's in this uh, passage. See, the implied question is, is who is not wise and understanding? Notice the first word there in uh, verse 14. It's, uh, it's what we normally say when we're in the middle of a compliment to someone, right? Well, you did a great job, but... <laughs> but... What James is saying here with but is he's going to put in opposition to 13, the person who is a believer and who is wise and understanding. He's going to put in opposition to that a pretender. Someone who's in the church, 
but they don't know Christ. And he's going to talk about them. And due to the material here, it's going to take two weeks uh, to get through this. Because what he says here is so profound and we need to not miss it. Because I would hate for any of us come judgment day to realize that we were a pretender and it's too late. It's too late. Let's see what James has to say about the counterfeit here in verse 14. Would you read with me again? But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. James, just like Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with the Beatitudes. He starts with the attitude of the heart. And that's exactly where James goes here first. He's concerned not with the behavior. He's concerned with the motivations in the heart. And he identifies the two primary conditions that tend to be in a heart of someone who's not right with God. And that is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Wow. What are those? Start with the first one. Jealousy. What is it? It's a strong feeling of resentment towards someone who has something that you want. It could be something physical, maybe a talent they have, maybe it's a spouse they have, a car they have, a job they have, or it may be praise that they receive. They get approval, adoration. You don't. And you're jealous. See, the reason that a person is jealous is because they want it. See, they're not excited that the other person received praise. They want the praise. It's about themselves. The whole basis and root of jealousy is discontent. Lack of gratitude. Sense of entitlement. This is what Paul had to say when he was talking to Timothy. Encouraging him as a young pastor in his character. He says, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. James doesn't mention just jealousy, the desire of having something that someone else has. He mentions bitter jealousy. The word bitter there is an attitude. It's one that's harsh, sharp, and destructive. This this word is actually not a good word. It actually implies you don't care what happens to anybody while you try and get what you want. You don't care. This is that person that when they look behind them, there's dead bodies behind them, and that doesn't even cause them to flinch. 
This is the person. Everything is about them. Do you know who a good person is to them? It's someone who gives them what they want. You know who a bad person is to someone who is uh, bitter and has jealousy? It's anyone who gets in their way and is an obstacle to them accomplishing what they want. They are the enemy. In Acts, there was a situation where Paul and Barnabas were preaching and uh, in the city of Pisidia, Antioch. And the people said, would you come back again next week? And it says that the whole city showed up. The whole city showed up to hear Paul and Barnabas preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And in Acts 13, verse 45, this is what happened. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Imagine in this situation, Paul and Barnabas are trying to give the good news of Jesus Christ to Jews and Gentiles. And all of a sudden, the Jewish leaders come, and they're filled with excitement because they see that people are hearing about the good news of Jesus Christ. No, it says they're full of jealousy. And what are they jealous about? The crowd is here to hear them and not us. And because of their jealousy, they don't care what they're going to do. So they have to oppose Paul and Barnabas, which is, says it is what they did. And it says they even went to the point of blaspheming God. Whoo! Whoa! See, it's amazing when your objective is jealousy, which is, it's about me, I'm even willing to blaspheme God. The tendency is those who are bitter and jealous, they will tend to slander and gossip about others. And who in particular do you think they'll slander and gossip about? The person that they are jealous of. They will point out every problem, failure, because they want everyone to look less on them so that they look better. Now let's look at the second characteristic of the heart of a pretender. James uses the word, and it's translated, selfish ambition. The word means strife, contentiousness, extreme selfishness. This word is actually used in classical Greek for politicians. <laughs> about that? Ambition, right? I've got ambition. And, and isn't that what you think of when you think of politicians? You lie, cheat, steal, whatever it takes. There's dead bodies behind you, but I got to my position. I'll lie, cheat, steal, whatever it takes. That's what this word is. Inherent within the definition is the, the concept of conflict. 
Because in you're trying to achieve your goal, others are going to get hurt. It's inevitable. But James then goes and gives an admonition to these pretenders. And this is the most important part. Look at what he says there in verse end of 14. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Why, why would James be saying that? The word there, to be arrogant, means to boast against. It always means to put down something else to exalt self. That's implied. That's why it's against. You're actually going against something. So it's the truth of what God says in the gospel. I'm against that and in exalting my own view of how it is I want to live for God. And my way is better. My way is better. See, pretenders are tempted in their pride to believe that their way of serving God is not only satisfactory, but it's better than other believers. They don't need to listen to the warnings of those that care about them. They're superior. James is concerned for the pretender because they're living the Christian life on their terms and not God's and they're deceived. And that's why the second admonition is he challenges them not to lie against the truth. This word's amazing. This word literally means to pretend with the intent to deceive. This word is different than another word in the Greek. It doesn't mean to lie for the purpose of lying. This word means to lie for the specific intent to deceive. Like Satan in the garden. This is the exact Greek word in 1 John when it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, I'm a Christian, and yet I walk in the darkness, we lie. So if I say that I walk with him, and yet I walk in the darkness, you lie with the intent to deceive. First John 1 John 1.6 See, Christian pretenders have to lie. This is the most important point of this whole passage. Christian pretenders must lie, and they lie to two people. The first one is themselves. 1 Corinthians 3, why don't you turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. First Corinthians three, verse eighteen. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, 
he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men. Do you notice how Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, don't deceive yourself, don't boast. Exact same concept as James is using here. And who's he admonishing the Corinthians not to deceive? Themselves. Because they're putting their hope in the wisdom of this world. Titus 3, 3 says this, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. The second person that a pretender must deceive is others. Second Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men and impostors, and the word impostor means someone who habitually fools or deceives other people through pretense. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What does it look like when a pretender is deceiving themselves and then deceiving others? When you're involved in uh, ministry for a long period of time, you do evangelism on the street, you hear a lot of people lying to themselves and trying to lie to others. And so what I've done is I've put together a short list of the favorite lies that I've heard over the years. Because this passage, when it's encouraging us, uh, encouraging pretenders to repent, many times the pretender doesn't think they're pretending because they don't see themselves. Remember Thomas's favorite line he's been using lately? Uh, Whose blind spots do we not see? It's always our own. We always see everyone else's faults. In fact, we're all the uh, delegated Holy Spirits for our spouses. Uh, We all know that. Uh, But when it comes to ourselves, for some reason, we're blind. We're absolutely blind. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to provide some illustrations of what self-deception looks like. And my prayer is, is there's, there's actually, this passage is written to pretenders. But it's possible for a Christian to also be captured in lies. And so this, these examples could also be challenges to believers this morning. Because we all are susceptible to lies, even though we know the truth of Jesus Christ. So... If you could have ears to hear today for yourself, and not just as you hear these go, oh, I know who that one was. Uh, Think about yourself. Guys, you know, put your gear on. You don't get too many elbows. Uh, Here we go. Here's some examples of 
how pretenders deceive themselves. The first one is the victim. This is the person who all of their sin, their anger, uh, their discontent, their complainers, their whiners, uh, this is the one who, if only my child, if only my child, they wouldn't yell and scream. So whose fault is it that they're yelling and screaming? It's their child, right? The victim is the person who never assumes responsibility for their sin. They're the victim of that child of mine that's out of control and not obeying. That child. If God would just say that child. They're a victim. And as long as they continue in that deception... They will never change. Galatians 6, 7 and 8 speaks to them. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The second deceiver, pretender, is the spiritualizer. This is a hard one. This is the person who knows all the right uh, spiritual terms. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Isn't God good? They just throw out all these spiritual phrases and terminology I like, to, I like to phrase it this way. There's a lot of smoke there with what they're saying because there is no genuine walk. It's window dressing. They're not spiritual. They're a spiritualizer. They're a pretender and they do it verbally. And most people are impressed. But when you look at the fruit of their life, They're not always praising the Lord. Their life is anxiety, fear, sin. 2 Timothy 3 says this, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, but they've denied its power. Holding to a form of godliness. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But they deny its power. Avoid such men as these. The pretenders. The do-gooder. They do lots of good works around the church. Quick to volunteer. And they do a lot of good deeds in the community. But the problem is, why? See, remember when James started this passage, he talked about selfish ambition 
and bitter jealousy in the heart. See, what matters to God is our hearts and our motivations. A do-gooder is someone who does a lot of things, but the reason they're doing it is to appease their own conscience. They're trying to earn their way and get brownie points with the Lord. They're not doing it because they love the Lord and they have a walk with Him. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The fourth one is the debater. Especially out on the street, when you're doing evangelism, you find a debater. But unfortunately, they're in the church as well. This is the person who continually finds a new theological hurdle in the Bible that provides him another excuse for why he doesn't need to fully surrender his life to God. Always some issue, some theological issue. What about this? What about that? Do you know in the Middle Ages? What about the Crusades? Always have an argument. Always wanting to debate. And the real bottom line is, is it's a smokescreen. See, they're pointing the finger over, do you see that in the Bible? Can you believe that people believe that? Did you see what they did in the Middle Ages? But notice where the finger is. It's always over there. It's never right here. And where are they with God? It's a smokescreen. Many times a pretender. Second Timothy 3 has this to say about them. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The fifth one is the hypocrite police. This is the person who loves to focus on the failures of individual Christians or the universal church. And they use their own false humility. I sure don't want to be a hypocrite. As a smokescreen for why he never fully surrenders his life to God's authority. You know what's amazing about this one? When the person says, I don't want to be a hypocrite, what are they usually choosing? Well, I'm not even going to try and be a Christian. See, they use it as a smokescreen to continue in a life of non-commitment. See, what does God say should be the right answer? If you look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, what did he say? He said, first take the log out of your own eye, so you can do what? You can take the speck out of your brother's. See, the solution to the problem of the hypocrite is first for us to repent. Myself. Then I can help the other person. The hypocrisy occurs when I don't first take the log out of my own eye. But the pretender uses the hypocrite argument to justify remaining uncommitted to God. Because at least I'm not a hypocrite. Number six is a sobering one. And this is one of those that uh, honestly is, is up there for me as one of the most concerning. 
because this one is can be the most deceit, deceptive. It's the confessor. This is the person that's quick to admit his sin when he's caught or confronted. I'll own it. You got me. In fact, not only are they quick to own it, they express amazing levels of sorrow, embarrassment, and they even beg for forgiveness. But, they never repent or change. See, Satan confesses every day. I am Lucifer, and I am in rebellion against God. Does that confession help him? No. It's repentance is the key. But see, most believers don't know the difference. Why? Because they're confessors too. And not repenters. This is what Paul had to say in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Repentance without regret. I'll do whatever it takes to make this right. I want to be right with God and others. I'll do whatever it takes. And that leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Death. This is why this is so deceptive. Quick to confess. Unwilling to repent. Number seven. The perfectionist or the legalist. This is the rule keeper. He loves to point out where others fall short in their obedience. May the Lord bless him. Especially when it's an area where he's personally strong and successful. He's proud of his successes and he's always right. And he provides well-reasoned arguments for why he's never at fault. Don't expect to hear him say I was wrong or please forgive me. But he'll always remind you that God requires it from you. See, again, it all comes to the heart. What's the motive for rule-keeping? It's to impress others and to appease his own conscience, not to please God. This is what Jesus had to say about the perfectionist. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Number eight, 
misguided mercy. This is another one that's uh, very deceitful, and you'll understand as I explain it. This is the person who in pride, the motivation is pride, deceives himself into believing that he's more caring and less judgmental than other Christians. Motivated by his own arrogant and critical spirit, he foolishly attempts to influence those on the fringe within the church or those on the outside. This is the person who, uh, they're very critical of other Christians who don't accept people that are different, dress different, talk different. Uh, they, they have, you know, different interests. Uh, but I do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out. I'm going to be caring to those who are on the fringe of the church or on the outside. Now, in and, on, in and of itself, that would be a wonderful thing, that everybody would be concerned about those who are different. That's fantastic. But the issue here is the motivation is not pure. As a youth pastor for 14 years, I saw more kids take a dive on this. It was just amazing to me. Because what would happen is, is see, the, the argument to their parent is, well, I'm reaching out and I'm caring for the uncared for, the unlovely. And what's the parent thinking? No, you're being cared for by the unlovely. You're being influenced. You're not influencing. And I tell you, I saw student after student bite that hook, believe that lie, take a dive. And they were the ones being influenced, not being the influencer. This is what Paul had to say about those who are pretenders because of misguided mercy. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The ninth one is, I'll indulge today and I'll repent tomorrow. This is great for college. <laughs> High school, college. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's right. I, literally, I would have conversations with students. They'd look me right in the eyeballs. Oh, Mr. Groves, I know everything that you're saying is true, but not now. Not right now. There's too much fun to be had. Come on, don't be such a party pooper, Mr. Groves. But they want to stay in the church to maintain their reputation while they play the field a little bit. Because I am coming back. I am coming back and I don't want to look too, too dirty when I come back. 1 Corinthians 6 has this to say, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexualities, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul said, today is the day of salvation. Don't put off tomorrow what can be done today. Number ten. The smooth talker, the sexual predator. This one's broken my heart as a pastor. You've noticed I've used the male 
example here in each of these. It's just as relevant for women. I've actually had as many female predators in the church as male. It's devastating. This is the man who uses spiritual terminology, Christian service, focused personal attention, acts of kindness, and words of flattery to manipulate weak and vulnerable women for their own personal gratification. 2 Timothy 3 has this to say, Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Number 11, pity party. In all of history, no one has experienced greater disappointment, rejection, neglect, abuse, and loneliness than this person. Everyone, including God, has abandoned and hurt this man. His primary motivation is not to love God and others, but to limit his future pain. Therefore, he must protect and isolate himself from others, especially God. Think about it. This person will be right there in the middle of the church. And the more you reach out to them, the more they do this. The very source of help that they need, which is God and brothers and sisters coming along into their life, their whole object in life is to not get hurt. And by the way, when they feel lonely, whose fault is it? It's yours. Next time you pick up some honey, you're going to want to know when it says pure honey, is that for real? James today is wanting each of us to ask the question, am I one who's wise and understanding? Am I a believer or am I a pretender whose heart is full of selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, and I'm okay with that. I boast in that. And I lie to myself and I lie to others that I'm okay. James, if you turn there, and we'll close with this. This is how James challenges the pretender to respond. James chapter 4, verse 7. This is probably one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture on what real repentance looks like. And this soon follows after this passage that we're reading. This is what James is challenging the pretender to do. James 4, verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves 
in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for your patience, your kindness, your gentleness toward us. Lord, you sent your Son to die for us, to rescue us from ourselves. And Lord, you you desire that everyone in the church would be wise and understanding. Lord, they would fear you and they would avoid evil. But God, that's not always the case. Lord, it's, it's easy for some to have been snared by lies, hurts, deceptions. Lord, and they're living a life that is a lie. And Lord, you are calling them today to no longer boast, to no longer brag about their position of self-deception, but Lord, to repent. Lord, I pray that you would grant repentance today to every man, woman, and child here so that you may be glorified in their heart and in their life. And that they could truly be called wise and understanding. Thank you, Lord. In your son's name. Amen.